to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Let me tell you something, people. You know, there's a lot of hate going on these days. And, and it really surprises me. I go on Facebook and I see people who just write such awful, awful stuff. And there are people that I sit there and I thought I knew. I grew up with them. We grew up in a nice town in New Jersey. You know, I had left. I went to L.A. for a long time and I came back. So I did live a little more. But it just it disappoints me a lot. And, and the one a group that is getting a lot of this hate are Asians. And, and that pisses me off because in college, my roommate, Benny Bennett C. Lowe, was from Hong Kong. And I learned a lot about the culture. And uh, he came over and brought some amazing music. I mean, in, in like in 1983, he got some of the best music. He brought us New Order, Roxy music, stuff we never heard. But a lot of that's going on. And my guest today is a very, uh, very popular rapper who actually has a, a single out called Anti, which is against it. And all about the hate and what we're going to do, and we're going to talk about that. And my guest is Lyrics Born. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. No problem. Now, you know, I was talking to Susie Nakamura. She's an actor, and she's been on the show before, and she said she didn't want to come back on until everything in, in her community had been taken care of. But for you, you really have come out, and you're trying to combat it with a single. But what kind of hate? Have you experienced, especially because in the rap world, you don't think of an Asian being in a rap a, a rapper? <laughs> That's, well, yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of people don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I can just tell you that, you know, the, the anti-Asian violence and sentiment is nothing new for us. You know, it's something that I've grown up with. It's a it's a part of life as much as just rolling over in the middle of the night. You know, it's the I mean, it, it never goes away. And, and um, I think, though, that what we're seeing has been a spike, a huge spike since COVID started in in anti-Asian violence and anti-Asian sentiment. And I think it's news to a lot of people now because it's actually made the news, you know. But like I said, this is something that we've been dealing I've been dealing with it my entire life. And most of my family members relatives have been dealing with it their entire lives so if you really look at it it's been going back for hundreds of years it's funny i got i got i had i got these kinds of calls you know people are calling me up hey man when did all you know like my non-asian friends are calling me up and they're like when did all this non-anti-asian violence start da, da, da. and i'm like 200 years ago man 300 you know but it's not until we started hearing things like the China virus or the Kung flu, you know, I mean, things that, that these, these, these little one-liners and these really racist catchphrases have entered the culture, you know, and they've entered the culture at the very top, you know? And so when you have people in national leadership normalizing this kind of speech and this kind of behavior 
it all trickles down. And, and I mean, let's be real. These are things that if your coach or your teacher or your boss or a coworker were saying things like the China virus or the Kung flu or, you know, saying these kinds of things in the workplace, in school, you know, at, in a team setting, that person would be fired. And it would be very hard for that person to get a new job, you know. But because it's entered the, the lexicon from the very top, um, it, it trickles down and it creates a, a really dangerous, intense environment where it's basically a free-for-all to say whatever you want to say and behave however you want to behave towards Asians and Asian Americans. And um, that's why we are seeing this, in some cities, thousand-fold, and I'm not exaggerating here, this is documented, this is facts, thousand-fold increase in anti-Asian incidents being recorded. Now, you said you know, you've heard it for years. Well, you, you've you grown up and lived in a lot of different places, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so what was that like moving, and especially, you know, as a young kid, and you've heard these slurs, what was it like from you moving? I know you live raised in Salt Lake City. I don't know how that is with, you know, I always, whenever I think of that, I think of, you know, bunch of white people. I mean, that's what we think about when, you know, when you heard the Utah Jazz played basketball in Utah, you're like, there's no jazz in Utah, you know, it's whatever. But but so what was it like for you growing up as a kid? I mean, did you feel a lot of heat, like in a predominantly white area where you grew up? Did you get a lot of this, these slurs towards you when you were younger? Well, just to be clear, I mean, you know, I was born in Japan, and we moved to the United States when I was probably one or two years old. So I don't, I don't really have any recollection of growing up in a foreign country. You know, we moved when I was an infant, and um, I lived in Salt Lake City from the time I was about two till the time I was about six. So only about four, uh, about five, five. So only about four, maybe four years. And then um, from the age of of six until now, I've lived in Berkeley, California. So um, I've spent the majority of my life in Berkeley. But I I remember, just to give you an example, this is something we, you you know, as people of color and Asian Americans, this is something that we encounter and we – begin to feel at a very early age. And I'll I'll give you an example. I remember that when I was uh, probably about preschool age, three or four years old, I remember going to daycare, you know, like preschool. I was in preschool. This was before I even hit kindergarten. And I remember the lady that ran the preschool, okay, uh, and, and at that time, the preschool was in this giant house. You know, it was a huge house. And I remember one time she gave me a bath 
you know, which is something that you, you probably cannot do at this time, right? You cannot do this. But the, the headmaster, she gave me a bath, and she was like, you're extremely dirty. We need to wash that off of you. That was my skin tone. You know, that was my skin tone. And I just remember pretty much for the first five or six years of my life, you know, even when I moved to Berkeley, spending extra time in the shower trying to wash the brown off of me. You know what I mean? Um, you become indoctrinated at a very early age. I mean, you know, I think I even said this in my bio. I mean, I was called chink, jap, gook, nip, immigrant, slant eye, every day, every day until I was probably 20, every day, you know, and, um, it's like I say in the song, I mean, you, you know, let's be transparent. This shit's been happening before the pandemic coming up. I heard chink so much. It was anthemic. Imagine what that's done to our self image. This is it's just a part of daily life for us as, as, as normal as brushing our teeth, you know? And, um, you can say it would be easy to assume, oh, well, it's because you grew up in a, in a place that was, you know, I don't know, culturally conservative or monocultural, you know, like, like, you know, you make the assumption maybe that, that because, you know, those first few years were spent in Salt Lake City, but, the rest of my life, I spent in one of the most celebrated liberal communities in the United States of America. You know, so the, the point that I'm trying to make is that it happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. Well, yeah, something, a, a, an attack happened in Philadelphia, which Philadelphia is very, you know, is a very diverse city and it surprises you, you know, I mean, I mean, I remember, as I said, I, I mentioned my roommate from uh, Hong Kong in college. I used to love going to dim sum with him because all the, all the tourists would be there. We get towards the end and he'd speak Cantonese and we get the whole new, whole new uh, tray of food because, <laughs> and it was great, you know, but Philadelphia had a very hip Chinatown area and, and it happened there and it surprises you. Now I got to ask you, you know, you're, you're a performer. I know you rap and you say, I read, you know, you, you said you're a good comedic actor. Well, I got to ask you, cause you know, I was born, I'm legally blind to one eye. So I had a bit of a lazy eye. Years later, I did stand up comedy for 10 years. And I think the reason was because of that insecurity and the pain you sort of felt getting made fun of. Do you think that's one of the reasons why that you went into the entertainment world as a release from the the crap you heard when you were younger? You know, that's a, that's a, that is a great question. That is a great question. I think, um, fundamentally I, I got involved. I, I got into showbiz because I'm an artist. I mean, just fundamentally I'm an artist, but as I reflect on my life now, I see that, this need that we have to be seen and to be heard probably did drive my career choice in a certain way. You know, it probably did. And, um, you know, I've always tried, you know, whether it was funny or sad or 
more tragic or traumatic or scary or hilarious. I've always tried to weave in my life experiences, Asian American or otherwise, you know, into my music. Um, because I, I think, you know, the responsibility that I feel to myself is, is to speak my truth, you know, and sometimes that truth is painful, you know, sometimes it's hilarious, you know, sometimes it's distasteful, sometimes it's, um, it's powerful nonetheless, you know, so, um, that's a great question. Could be. Yeah. Because we always think about that, because you, you have certain things, you know, certain factors that you don't notice that until you get older. And then you sit there and go, oh, yeah, a little sense. Now, tell me about the song Anti. Tell me when you decided to do it and and what you're going to, the message you're conveying towards it. Tell me about the whole, how this whole song came up. And when you sat there and said, okay, you know, the lyrics have to probably be on point. They have to be right. They can't be, you know, you don't want them to be overly... You know, I can't think of the word. You know, sometimes people go overboard, but you want to make a message. When did you decide to write this and start doing this? And what was the process? Well, so I'll just start by saying that, uh, first of all, shout to Cutso, uh, who, who's not on the interview right now. But the song was made in collaboration with DJ Cutso, who I've worked with before. I did an album with him a couple of years ago called Rap Night. And, um, you know, we're, we collaborate with, that, with each other all the time. And he hit me about a month ago because they were doing a, he was doing a live stream benefit for Stop AAPI Hate, which is a, a, a charitable organization that is, you know, helping to spread awareness and against anti-Asian violence. And so he called me up. He's like, you know, I'm doing this this benefit live stream. Can you do record a couple dub plates for me, just of some of your older songs, you know? But then we got to talking about the issue, and in our conversation, we both had so much to say that we said to each other, "You know what? We don't. What if we just did a whole new song? What if we recorded an original song for this?" Because every Asian American at that point was well aware that it on the street right now you know, depending on where you were, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and um, so we decided to, to, to write a, a, a whole new song. And, and just to give you an idea, the song was conceived, written, recorded, produced, mixed, video shot, uploaded, um, purchase donation, Bandcamp campaign launched in 10 days. Now, how long does that, how long does it usually take for you to get a song together and to do all that? How long would it take you to produce, shoot a video? Two weeks, three weeks, a month? How long usually? At least a month. Okay. At least a month. But because everybody felt so passionately about this issue, Everybody that we worked with to get this, to, to get the song done and get the video done and, and see it through all the steps, everybody was so galvanized around this issue. It just happened like that. And as far as the process of writing it, you know, these are not hard songs to write because there's a lifetime of material there. 
You know, there's a wealth of material there that I can pull from. In fact, I wrote too much. You know, I wrote too much. I had to lop that. I had to lop the lyrics in half because I, those kinds of songs write themselves because it's something that, like I said, I mean, it's it, it's something that we experience so regularly that the material is just so readily available. It's those songs are easy to write. I think I wrote that song in like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you know, and um, that's just how it is, you know, and the thing of it is anti that song, it could have been relevant a year ago. It could have been relevant 10 years ago. It's just that it, it resonates a lot more now because like I said, it's in the news, it's in the mainstream consciousness to a degree. You know, people are aware of it. You and I are having this conversation. I didn't need to tell you that anti-Asian violence was a phenomenon. You already knew, you know. So what that tells me is that that information is already out there. So it kind of cleared the runway for us to have these kinds of conversations and make these kinds of songs and have them resonate in a, in a way that maybe wouldn't have five years ago, ten years ago even though the song would have been just as valid. Now, because there's been a lot of hate, there's always been hate, but because it seems to be escalated, as you said, some places more than a thousand you know, times, do you get scared for your family? I mean, it's something that, you know, it's, it's you know, I'll be honest, as a white person, I don't have to worry about that. I don't sit there and worry about, you know, well, my mom's 90, she's has Alzheimer's, so I'm, you know, I don't worry about that, but you know, <laughs> right. I'm just saying, she's not going to be walking down the street, if she is, I have yeah. more to worry about than you, know. but I've never had to worry about that, I mean, maybe if you're in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, but do you worry about your family, because as you see in the news, I mean, there was that incident in uh, San Francisco, where the guy hit the lady, the lady hit him with the wood, uh, the wood beat his ass, which was great, I think everyone was cheering for her, and she just right. kicked his ass, and that's when, that's when you sit there and probably people go, well, I better not mess around, but it seems, you know, it is happening in all ages and, and a lot of older people. Do you get scared for your family? Because you're, you're someone who can probably take care of yourself. You look like you're in good shape. I mean, even though if there's five people, you're screwed. But does it? do you sit there and when you go to sleep, do you worry about family and younger ones and older ones that you know? Absolutely. Of course. Of course. And I think that's what's really shitty about this particular era that we're living through right now. Is that not only, and I say it in anti, you know, not only do I have to worry about all the things that every American and person is worried about during COVID. Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my house? Am I going to be evicted? What kind of toll is this taking on my mental health? What kind of toll is this taking on my relationships? Am I going to lose my assets? Oh, and by the way, there's this thing called COVID. I could pass from that shit. You know what I mean? So not only do I have to worry about all those things, now I have to worry about, am I going to get my ass kicked out on the street? Is my wife, is my son, when he goes back to school, whenever that is, is he going to get harassed by racist upperclassmen? I mean, I'm just quoting my song this point you know what i mean but i have to worry about our elders which as you've seen i mean a lot of what's happening is directed towards senior citizens 
a lot of what's happening is, is being directed toward Asian women, you know. So there's this extra blanket or two on the bed, you know. So I'm, I'm concerned. I'm worried just like every other American is right now about, you know, all the repercussions of just COVID in general, you know. But now I got to worry about I could possibly die out there. Of course I'm worried about that. Of course that concerns me. Of course I'm fearful for my community. You know, and that's what's so devastating for us right now. Now, you know, you're you're devastated and, you know, everything happens like that. But you're a creator and, you know, you did do anti. But besides that, has, has this worry affected your creativity besides the song in a good way or a bad way like i know sometimes if you're worried it's harder sometimes it's easier to create sometimes it's harder to create but what have you been going through with the creative process through covid and through all this stuff that's coming to the forefront how have you dealt with it and are you using it as an outlet to be inspire you more than going past just that one song well you know i think for for most artists we use our art as an outlet for whatever we're feeling, you know, at a given time or a given moment. I think, you know, as, as a guy who's been in therapy, you know, for years now, one of the things that I was always advised to do is journal. And, you know, no matter what you're going through, just so it gets, you can get it out of your head. You get it out of your head put it on paper or, you know, in, in my case, as an artist, as a, as a rapper, as a musician, I get it out of my head and I put it down on tape, as we say, you know, my journal are, my journals are my albums, my journals are my songs. And so in that respect, I'm able to therapeutically channel how I feel and what I'm going through via music. And then however it finds itself out in the world is how it finds itself and where it lands is where it lands. I mean, I, I don't really have much control over that process once it, once it sort of is out there in the ether, you know what I mean? Right. But to answer your question, I would say that's all I've ever done. That's all I've ever done. Um, is take these thoughts, these feelings, these emotions, these experiences, compile them into words and songs and sound and create art with it. Now, when did you find out you were an artist? Like for me, when I did stand-up, was when I was a kid, I remember I went to the record store and I found a Lenny Bruce album. And I remember my brother would listen to Cheech and Chong the wedding album, and I would just crack up, man, and that shit would make me laugh, and then I came home with a Toledo Window Box album by Carlin. Now, my parents had no idea what a Toledo Window Box was, and if they were, they would have been like, what? Stevens listened to people talk about smoking pot? I mean, they had no clue. They were clueless, but that's what spurred me, and also, I mean, I could never play a musical instrument, but I've always loved music, but as a little kid, were you attracted to music, or were you attracted to sports, or what made you groove and then start to follow this career you've had which has been a very long and successful career 
That's a that's a great question. I, I think I think for myself, you know, e- even as a child, very very young, you know, five six years old, I knew I wanted to be an artist. You know, I grew up. My father was a writer, so I saw the I saw his process firsthand. I saw the lifestyle that he lived, and you know, the commitment that he had, and you know what it took to achieve that. Uh, to, to achieve that. And, um, so I was familiar with, with, with those aspects of being an artist from a very early age. It wasn't until I heard hip hop for the first time in maybe kindergarten or first grade or second grade, somewhere in there that I said, Oh, okay. It was instant. It was like, boom. Okay. I knew I always wanted to be an artist now I know exactly what kind of artist I want to be. You know, as soon as I heard that, as soon as I heard the Sugar Hill Gang, it was like, you know, as a as a first grader, I was like, that's it for me. I know exactly what my my destiny is. I know what my path forward is. And then that was it, man. The ship took off. What was it that did that to you? I mean, it's funny because I've been talking to a lot of musicians this week who are older, like little Steven and, uh, you know, Gary Newman and different people. And they all, for them, it was the Beatles, but they saw the Beatles on TV. And it was just when they looked and said, Oh, wow. Look at those guys. The women love them. They're all dapper. They're at Sullivan show. That's what did it. But for you, you know, and it wasn't, there wasn't back then there wasn't, you know, MTV was on, but MTV wasn't playing. If, People were playing a lot of rap videos. You might see Run DMC. You might see something. But it was just, was it the beat that attracted you? Or you just went, you know, because there's thousands of things we can hear in music. You know, why does why did Randy Rhodes play metal? You know, why did so and such? But was it something about, you know, that song that just, the beat that you said, this is different, man. This is really cool. I, I can really relate to this. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what it was. It, it, it was... When you talk about like little Steven seeing the Beatles for the first time, right? They they saw these things. For me, it was what we weren't seeing. It was what we weren't hearing. When I looked, when I turned on the radio, it was like, you know, Bonnie Tyler, total eclipse of the heart, you know, or, you know, or Springsteen or, you know, respect to all those artists. That's great. But I just remember feeling, even at that age, that a lot of the stuff that I was hearing on the radio was not speaking to me. You know, it was not speaking to my experience. It was not speaking to me culturally. And when I heard Sugar Hill Gang for the first time, it was like, wow, this is unlike anything I have ever heard my entire life and you got to understand I was coming from Salt Lake City you know I was I was a I was like a four-year-old or a five-year-old coming from Salt Lake City you know and so you know fresh from like the like so you know the era that I'm talking about that that um that was happening in music and the all and I'll tell you the other key thing was that before I even heard the actual song rappers delight before I even heard the actual song, I knew all the words to the song. Why? Because the kids on the schoolyard were singing it 
over and over and over again. And they would, you know, all the kids, when I was just new to school in Berkeley, they, the kids would finish each other's sentences. Hip, hop, hippy to the hip, I am wonder. And they would trade off. And then the song would just continue through like 10 kids. And the fact that children could do this, it made it instantly accessible for me. It was like, oh shit, I can do this. I don't have to take piano lessons. I don't have to take voice lessons. I don't have to learn how to play guitar, you know? Anybody could, it just felt so accessible. It felt so welcoming. And you gotta understand, like I said, I mean, even early on, I knew I was on the outside. You know, I knew I was on the outside, you know, and so to hear or I felt like an outsider. So to hear this music for the first time in a world where you didn't hear or see anything like it and have it be so accessible and easy to participate in as a child, that's what drew me to it well, it drew you to it, and it's funny, because, you know, you're in first grade. You know, in first grade, you know, I think I wanted to be a sportscaster, I wanted to be a fireman, I wanted you know, you you have this thing. Now, when do you start pursuing it? When do you sit there, I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, you know, you're in first grade. Like, you know, I mean, when it's not like we're lyricists in first grade. I mean, it's not like, you know, what do we, you know, you hear first graders jokes, they're like, you know, what the hell is that? But when did you start really, when did you start really pursuing it and saying, you know what, this is what I'm going to do, because to get into the arts is, is tough as it is, you know, and to sit there as a very young, I mean, well, you, you were dreaming, but when did you start creating your own raps? How old were you when you started sitting there and rapping or rapping in the schoolyard? Was it, did, was it gradually after that or did you push it? Did you put it away in your, in the back of your mind for a while and then later go, shit, this is what I want to do. So I think when I, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade, I was just sort of a bedroom rapper. You know, like me and my friends, we would write these raps, you know, Fat Boy, by that point, like Run DMC was super popular, Fat Boys were super popular, you know, I was probably in elementary school at that time, you know, and I would write these raps and whatever, they weren't that serious, they weren't that good, I wasn't really recording anything, I didn't really start writing and recording seriously until probably freshman year of high school at Berkeley High, and, um, Every, you know how every day after school, a lot of kids might go to football practice or they might go to baseball practice or they might go to, you know, this club or that club. Well, I went to a, a local producer's house named Onion and we went to the his basement studio in his parents' house. He was also, shout to John Watson, he was a, a producer at Berkeley High. Um, who actually later on a lot of local celebrities went through there and recorded because he was one of the few guys in the area that had a producer. I went to his house every day after school and we would make beats and he had a drum machine and he had a lot of records and we would talk about music and other guys would come through and I was the youngest of everybody, you know. And so I could see, you know, I had all these mentors, you know, and, um, that's when I got serious about it. It was at the Onion Lab, as, as it was called, uh, in the ninth grade. And, um, and that's where I got serious about it. 
Um, but then, you know, things didn't go so well for me at Berkeley High, and I, I had to leave, you know. Um, and I sort of lost touch with Onion and those guys because I was suddenly going to a new school in Oakland. And um, I, I sort of lost touch of the dream. I lost touch of the mute with the mute, not with the music. I was still a huge aficionado and fan. I bought every record that came out every week, you know, on cassette at that time. You know what I mean? And then, um, so, but I never stopped thinking about it. And it wasn't until, you know, a few years later when I got to college, I got to UC Davis and I met what would be the Soul Sides crew, which later became Quantum Projects. It's where I met Black Alicious. It's where I met DJ Shadow. It's where I met Jeff Chang. It's where I met Joseph Patel. These guys have all gone on, obviously, to be successful artists in their own right, you know. And we formed a label, a record label called Soul Sides, like I said, which later became Quantum. And I essentially went pro in 1993 uh, with a song called Send Them. At that time, I was called Asia Born. And I wrote the record when I was, I wrote the song when I, and recorded the song when I was 18. And it came out, we, we pressed up the records. We all pooled in, we all pooled and chipped in our money. And, you know, we were living in the dorms and with our parents and we all chipped in and made those, made those records ourselves. And that came out in 1993 when I was 20 years old. It was recorded at Dan the Automator's basement studio at his mother's house back when he lived at home and um shout to dan shout to the whole squad and here i am now almost 30 years later 15 albums deep you know now now what was the scene like back then you know what was because it's not like the rap scene was was huge i mean it was big but you know i mean new york la were really popping and you know you see that you know detroit had some action going and atlanta did but what was what was it like, and when you hit the scene, were you guys just recording your CDA, your albums, or were you actually doing live events? Both, yeah. But I mean, hip hop for the most part, hip hop was still very underground at that time. And when I say underground, I just mean to say that there weren't a lot. You know, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, there weren't a lot of groups or artists in hip-hop that were getting played on the mainstream. They weren't getting played on commercial radio. It's not like now. It's really hard to, to explain that to people now. There was no internet, you know. There was no Spotify. There was no... Um, there was no uh, social media. So everything filtered through record labels, whether independent or major. And um, it was still, it, it felt very underground. You know, it, it doesn't mean that artists didn't have deals on, or contracts with major labels. It just meant that those albums, there was never any real expectation for those albums to go platinum or double platinum. Or, or get played on commercial radio alongside 
who were some big artists at the time, like Whitney Houston or alongside, you know, CNC Music Factory or what, you know, we, we didn't expect that to happen necessarily. So on that, in that sense, it was a, it, it was a really underground phenomenon. There were a lot of independent record labels. Um, and uh, it was a great time. I remember it being very difficult. You know, I remember it being a very difficult time. But um, a lot of great music came out at that time. Now, at what point do you start breaking into more of a commercial standard where it's not underground? What was that for you? What was that one break, per se, that really put you on the track and it's like anything if you're underground and you're doing stuff it's awesome but if you're sitting there at the end of the day and you're not getting that appeal it can be a little bit of a downer even though if you love the art you sit there and go well wait i'm saying something i want people to hear it when was your breakthrough moment in your eyes i think for me um like i said i put out my first record in 1993 and then you know, I was still in college at, at the time. I mean, I was still, I was sophomore or junior in college. And um, uh, after I graduated, uh, I did a couple albums with uh, Latif, the true speaker. We did an, the group was called Latiri. So we did a couple albums there. The first album that you see behind me, this, this uh, red and gray one. And then um, uh, we toured. We toured the United States a few times. We toured Europe a few times. We toured, toured Australia a few times. And then fast forward 10 years later, I made this album later that day. That was my first solo album. And that was the breakthrough moment with me. I, for me. I think Calling Out was released. Calling Out went to number one on commercial radio not college radio, which is the, the kind of play that we were shooting for in the past. You know, that was really all we aspired to be was on the college radio charts at the time, back when college radio was a big thing and, 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 and really influential. Um, and from there, that just changed the trajectory of my whole career. From suddenly the tours got bigger, the venues got larger. We started selling lots of records. Um, we started getting a lot of licenses, which didn't really happen for hip hop at the time. When I say licenses, I mean, my music started to get widely used in commercials and TV and movies. And all that is pretty common now. But back then it was unheard of, you know, especially for independent hip hop artists. Now, what's it like when you're hearing your songs on commercials and stuff like that? I mean, I always think, you know, I, I go to the supermarket and they play a lot of AIDS with some of the guys that are in a band at a Philly called the Hooters that have became big. But I always think, you know, I'm friends with, pretty friends with Dave, David, the drummer. I always think, what's he think when he's, you know, going through the supermarket and he hears, you know, Day by Day or one of their songs, you know, do you sit there and go, oh. like for you, when you hear your song on a commercial, I mean, besides saying, dollar signs what do you uh what goes through your mind you sit there and go wow that's me or after a while you to go again i mean how does it like what do you go through as an artist to me i mean it, it makes me really proud i mean it, it, because i again i remember what it was like when there was no hip-hop on the radio 
when there were no hip hop videos being played on TV. I mean, there was one show I remember. If you didn't have cable, like we never had cable when I was a kid, so we we relied on this show when I was very small called Friday Night Videos. It was one show. Remember Friday Night Videos? It was on NBC or Channel Four. You know what I mean? And um, it came on at midnight on Friday for one hour. And I remember they played one rap video once. I think it was like Run DMC or somebody. And I heard it from the other room. You know, we would stay up until midnight on Friday when I was a kid just to watch Friday night videos, to see music videos once a week. And I think I heard Run DMC and I ran into the room and watched it on my black and white TV. You know what I mean? Or my, you know, my little tiny little color TV or whatever it was. You know, I was probably eight, you know, nine, something like that. And that was just such a huge moment for me. You know, that would, it just meant so much. Just that little two minutes of redemption all week long that you had waited for, praying that they would play some music that you loved, you know. To go from that to where we are now, where I'm in Trader Joe's or I'm in Chipotle and I can hear my songs, you know, on, I mean, we've come a long way and, and it's beautiful. It makes me so proud, you know, that I can, that I, I don't, not only am around to experience that moment, but, but in some small part, I've played a role in that. Now, when do you, when was the first time you remember hearing yourself on commercial radio not college radio, but because there's a difference. I mean, college radio always went for the indie, the different sounds. But commercial radio is like when you're driving in your car. And I always love the stories of people. They always remember. Do you remember when the first time you heard yourself on commercial radio? The first time I heard myself on commercial radio was a song called Balcony Beach. And it came out in 1996 or 1997. Again, just an independent 12-inch. And they played it on uh, on the beat in L.A., uh, which was, it's the biggest hip-hop station in L.A. And shout to Julio G., uh, who at the time broke the record. And, and um, I believe her name was Mariama, who broke the record. It was, it was huge. I mean, we had no promotional budget. We had no power. We had no machine behind us. You know, and so to hear that record being played alongside, you know, Snoop or, you know, Bone Thugs and Harmony at the time, who were huge multi-platinum groups, obviously. Oh, it was a big deal for me. It was a big deal, you know, and um, I just remember, you know, I was driving in my little two-door fucked up Honda Accord. You know, dents on the side, the expired tags and just bags of Jack, empty Jack in the box in the back seat. You know what I mean? And I'm just speakers falling out of the door. You know what I mean? Hearing my song on the radio and just being like, wow, this is really special. This is really, really special. 
Now, as, as you're getting bigger, as you said, you start getting commercial. How does your life change? You know, do you sit there and you go buy a new car right away because you knew the struggles an artist? Because most people do. You know, there are there. You know, as everyone always says, oh, he's, a, he's an overnight success when the person's been doing it for ten or fifteen years, and people don't know that. Like, well, wait a second, he, you know, oh, lyrics born, he's he's came out of nowhere. Well, no, he was doing, he was rapping in college, so it's you know, he's been around. But how, what, what, what were some of the luxuries when you started making money that you afforded to, to treat yourself? Which a lot of artists don't treat themselves. They go, oh, this, this might not last. Yeah, I got a little crazy, man. I did get a little, I got a little too crazy. You know, I went out, I bought a nice, fancy European car. You know, I bought a, I bought a drop top 1968 Cadillac Coupe de Ville, you know. Um, way too many pairs of sneakers, y you know, just let's go sofa shopping. I didn't even have room. You know what I mean? Um, I did a lot of stupid shit. You know, I did a lot of stupid shit because, you know, and I just remember thinking at the time it was like, I worked 20 years to get to this point. You know what I mean? Like. It, it had been 15 years from when I started making records till I actually started making a good living. 15 years, you know? And so I was like, fuck it, I'm going to buy a car or two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all the things that rappers do. You know what I mean? And I came to find out that that was not a smart move. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I came to find out that long term, that was not a smart move, you know, but um, I learned, I'm glad I learned early. I'm now, glad I learned early. Now, what was it like for you as the crowd started getting bigger as a performer? You know, it's something that, you know, you always think, oh, a big crowd is going to be great. Then all of a sudden you look out and you're used to playing this many and you see all these people and you go, holy shit, what if they don't like me? I mean, we all think that. I don't care who you are. You can be the biggest star. You always think, when I used to do stand-up, I think, okay, I'm going to a show. Will there, be will there be people there? It's a weeknight at a bar. Will there be people there? And if they're there, will they like me? What was it like for you growing as a performer as the crowds got bigger? Did that feed you in the beginning, or were you a little more timid in the beginning? No, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, for me, the bigger, the better. You know, that's how I've always felt. I mean, as, as a performer, it's the more energy you have in the room, the easier my job is, you know, to be completely honest. So I, I loved it. I love I love playing in front of huge crowds. I love playing, you know, big clubs, big theaters, festival stages, you know, it just it, it, thousands of people in front of me. Put me in front of them, man. You know, let's do it. I, I love it. I love playing big crowds, and that was always the goal. And so when it happened, I was ready, you know. Um, I live for that. Now, you said you, you, you found out you shouldn't be spending all this money. When, when did you... When did you feel like you matured as an artist? Because, you know, we, we, it's something that you're spending that money, you're not maturing, but you're treating yourself, which it should be done. But then there's also excess. You know, when you sit there and go, oh, I'm spending too much. When did you find out that you did that? Was it an accountant come to you and say, hey, listen, man, you're just spending too much damn money and the records aren't, you know, you're making money, but you're not making that much money? Well, for me, it was, you know, when you, when you are making a lot of money, 
you think it'll never end and you think it'll never change. And I, I think with most artists, what happens is, you know, when you look at the arc of most artists' careers, if they're lucky enough to get to the point where they do pop and it's this, this huge explosion and you're in this white, I think I heard Jay-Z call it the white hot space, you know, where you can just do no wrong. You know what I mean? And everything you touch is just magic and everything is just, every song you put out gets licensed and every song is well received and you're sort of in this zone, you know, that dissipates at some point, you know, the fervor, the sort of the, the, the initial enthusiasm from the crowd and, and that it dies down, you know, it dies down. And then you start to realize that you're on a wheel. You know, and you occupy a slot as far as that white hot space is concerned. And then that wheel turns. And then it makes room for somebody else, you know. And I didn't realize that at the time. I didn't realize that that white hot space does not last forever. You know, you want to be ultimately in your life in a place where you're somewhere in between hot and warm. You know what I mean? So that you can continue to simmer for the rest of your career. You know what I mean? I'm using, I'm going to start using a lot of cooking analogies now where you can just, you know, you can put it on simmer and stay, you know, bubbling for the rest of your career, you know, because life is long, you know, life is long and it's short, but it's as long as you choose it to be, you know, as far as your career is concerned. You know, and I, I made the choice finally, once I saw the valley, I had hit the peak and then I saw the valley. It was like, oh, longevity is not about how much you spend. It's about how much you reinvest, you know, and that's when I started to make some decisions about my career that, OK, I think what I need to do here is I need to increase the frequency of my output you know in terms of i need to put out albums more often because the world was also changing the world was starting to accelerate with the internet and you know things were fans were starting to cycle through albums faster you know there was more content out there to compete so i need to change the way that i make albums i need to make them with more frequency i need to be more active on social media um, I need to tour differently and, and the money that I do make, I need to reinvest in my career and simultaneously reinvest in other things outside of the music business, things that aren't as volatile, you know what I mean? And once I kind of made those decisions, um, those, though, it served me a lot better than having all my eggs in the rat basket spending all my money on shit that doesn't appreciate, you know what I mean? And um, I'm in a much better place now as an adult. <laughs> now, now, when when did you change your name to Lyrics Born? It was Asian Born originally, right? When did you change right. that and why did you? Was it just something that you, you didn't... I mean, why did you do it? So I changed... So I came out as Asian Born... And then I changed it probably in 99, in 1993. And then I changed, Lyrics Born was always kind of a nickname. You know, rappers have a billion alter egos and nicknames. 
So I, I changed. I'm no, I'm no different, man. So, you know, I, I, I changed it officially to lyrics born, I think in 94 or 95. And because what I really did not like was I did not like when I started to see press coming out when my records were coming out and they would talk about us and they would talk about quantum and they would talk about the soul sides crew, you know, Oh, he's pretty good for an Asian guy. Asian, you know, Oh, I like the Oriental. Oriental was still the word back then. You know what I mean? Oh, the Oriental guy's great. Wow. I didn't know Orientals could rap. I didn't know Asians could, you know, I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. And then I also realized that we are such a big, huge, diverse, beautiful group that no one person can capture the experiences or represent that accurately to the rest of the world. I'm representative of a group. You know, my experiences as a Japanese American man are different than the experiences of a Vietnamese man, a Laotian woman, you know, a Hmong grandmother, a Mian auntie, you know, your Korean uncle, you know, we're just so diverse. Our, our histories, our backgrounds, our experiences. And, um, that complexity, that beauty that needed to be represented accurately. Now, do you consider yourself a role model because you're Asian and you've been successful in rapping? It's like, look at tennis. You know, when the Williams sister hit it, all of a sudden you saw tennis in Compton. You didn't see it. You didn't see it in certain areas. People, you know, pursuing it because they didn't know they could attain something. For you, do you consider yourself a role model because younger Asian men who have men wanted to rap and have only thought that it was mostly African-American. Oh, well, there's one white guy, Eminem, and there's Vanilla Ice, but he's, he's not a rapper. He's just a, a goofball. Do, have, do you consider yourself inside somewhat of a role model, and do people come to you and say, hey, hey, thanks, man. You know, you made you made me know that I could do this. I hope I'm inspiring. I hope to inspire. You know, that's how I feel. You know, I hope to be inspirational. I hope that I succeed in doing that with my work, you know, and, 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 um, my stories, you know, I don't know that, I don't know. I think role model such an eighties term, you know what I mean? I, I think that as we grow, we should, I always view people as stories, you know, what can I pull from this story that was inspiring? What can I pull from this story as a cautionary tale? What can I pull from this person and this person's story as a marker to add to my own personal roadmap on my own personal journey? You know, what can I pull from this person's story so that I don't make the same mistakes? How did this person achieve that? What was that story? How can I incorporate that into my own? That's how I see things. I mean, I you know, I think role model. I don't even know if I, I, I haven't heard that phrase in a long time. And I don't know if I really use it. But I, I do say that I do hope to be inspiring. 
you know, in some small way. Now the acting, are you going to pursue that at all? I saw you, you, you've got the, you've got the little, you know, the, 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 the acting bug. And once you're on set, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, of course people don't know that, you know, being on set can be boring as shit. Cause you sit around all day and like, okay, wait, come in this way. Right. You know, come in this. Or did you plan to pursue act? Is that something that you plan in your future to sit there and go, I really want to act more. Or is that something that will be somewhat of a hobby to you because you have your other career going? No, I mean, I think it's all part of the same career, to be honest. You know, I mean, uh, I, I don't, these are all sort of different sides to the same Rubik's Cube. You know what I mean? In, in my opinion, I don't see acting as any different than, than rapping. It's just another, or music. It's just another outlet of expression for me. And, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, I, just, I had a, I had a great run of movies, you know, prior to COVID. Um, we're talking about a couple others right now, which I'm really excited about. And um, I can't wait, man. I love it. I love it. And it, and it's just so fun for me, you know, and that really is what drives me at this point. You know, I, it, it just, it has to feel fun. Some, in order for me to, to do it, to do something, it has to feel fun and it has to feel fulfilling, you know. Now, what's your future for this year? What are you, what For the next year, two years, what is your game plan? Because you, you're an intelligent guy, so you probably have a, you know, you, the drawing out, like, you know, because you've been in the business for a long time, so you know, you've been through the ups and downs, so you always do that long cat we all become businessmen that projecting what is you know the long term what is your what is your forecast for the next two years well um i have four albums on deck so two two of them are finished now the the album that anti the new song right now is is part of an album called mobile homies it's a collaborative album between me and 12 other artists so it's myself and prince paul a legendary producer. It's myself and Dan the Automator and Randall Park. It's myself and Cutso, obviously. Myself and Grouch and Eli. Myself and Black Alicious. Myself and Tune Yards. Myself and uh, UTK, Litkarsh. Um, myself and Combrio. I mean, so that's the next project. I have an acoustic album that's in the can. So... We went into the studio and we did acoustic versions of a lot of my big songs. You know, there's a new proper, there's two new proper lyrics born albums that I'm completing right now. I'll be in New Orleans recording for most of June. And then um, Cutso and I are working on a new rap night album. So that's what's happening music wise. Um, acting and film wise, I can't tell you just yet. You know, those things are happening, but they're, they're in development right now, but there are things are moving on that front as well. So I'm excited, man. Mobile home recordings. My label was kicking, you know, got 25 titles and a small catalog, you know, um, but it's growing every day. And I'm really proud of that. And um, on and on it goes, man. Well, that's awesome. I want to thank you for talking to me. Give your uh, social media, see if you give all your social media stuff. Where the people can find you? Yeah, I'm on. I'm on um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Lyrics Born. 
Hit me up. Joe, people, Come go, see about me. Go check him out, people. Go check him out his uh, music. Listen to it. You can find it. Listen to it. Always listen to music. You got to listen to live music and every kind of music. So anyway, follow Lyrics Born. Follow me. Uh, my website is coopertalk.net. You can find over 850 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter at coopertalk. Instagram at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys next time.